News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this morning, we are going to talk about the Big Bang in a more, let's say, philosophical way. How do we do that? Well, it starts with the question. If the Big Bang was the beginning, how did it come to be from nothing? Like, where was the matter that allowed the Big Bang to happen? Because it would need to be there, wouldn't it? Obviously, I need some help with this. So we're going to turn to Alistair Wilson, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Birmingham. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Good morning. Is this a, a debate that happens in the fields of philosophy of of what came before the Big Bang? Yeah, I mean, philosophers have been talking about this for, for thousands of years. These days, we tend to hand over the question at least uh, partly to, to physics, which has told us an awful lot about the very early universe. But at a certain time, you go far enough back towards the early universe, and, and even physics runs out of uh, runs out of knowledge. So, what is the idea behind it then? What was there before the Big Bang? Well, the further, the further back you go into the the really early universe, the less what you have looks like anything we recognise. So, you know, in in the first fraction of a second uh, after the Big Bang. Everything's extremely hot, extremely dense, extremely small, and there's no matter of the normal kind. Um, you keep on, keep on looking further back uh, to shorter and shorter periods after the Big Bang, and, and at that point, we just, we just don't know. Our, our current physics isn't good enough, so at that stage, kind of educated guesswork uh, starts, to, starts to fill the gap, and perhaps philosophy has a role to play there. In what way? Well, so, I mean, philosophers have spent some time thinking about the different kind of kinds of explanation you could have. Uh, you could you could either have kind of an infinitely um, continuing chain of explainers where it just kind of goes back forever and there's always something explained by the thing before. You could have a first cause or a first explainer, which many people would would link with God, um, or you could have uh, something more kind of self-explanatory. And uh, what, one of the options that, that, that I thought a bit about is the kind of loop answer, where it's the universe itself uh, that uh, all the way at the end of time kind of bends around and, and causes itself at the beginning of time. Hmm, okay. And so how do you study something like that, though, Alistair, when you say, like, there's not a lot for you to work with physics-wise, right? Well, no, I mean, there are, there, there are lots of suggestive ideas in physics. The, the hard part is testing them. Uh, the one, 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 one theory in the, in the vicinity is uh, called conformal cyclic cosmology. That was put forward by uh, Sir Roger Penrose, who won the uh, Nobel Prize uh, for physics in 2020 but for, for some different work. This is amongst his more speculative ideas. Uh, this says that we, his version says that we have a kind of infinite sequence of universes, each one being kind of born from the ashes of the previous one. Okay, so then where do you take your work from there? How do you expand on that? How do you study that? Well, some, some of these accounts do have particular um, testable consequences. So, so Penrose's uh, theory, he thinks, uh, is going to leave perhaps some, some traces in the night sky. You know, a universe that was born in this way from an infinite series of other universes might look a little bit different uh, than one that wasn't. Um, so we can go looking for those, those traces in the sky we can also build, you know, build bigger particle accelerators to do more, more physics. That's uh, not guaranteed to, to provide insights, but um, a lot of, uh, surprisingly enough, a lot of our, uh, our insights about the whole universe 
has come from doing doing experiments on very very tiny things uh, with these gigantic machines. So there's there's a lot of angles. Um, really, we're just trying to tell uh, you know the best the best story we can, fitting together all the things we do know about the universe. It is such a mystery, though, isn't it? Because there's so much they, they, they do know, and then there are still these kind of big, unanswered questions. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a, lo- a, lo- a lot of the um, questions are kind of around how, how much like uh, the, current, the current world that we live in was it back then. Was, did, for example, the principle of cause and effect, which we pretty much see everywhere uh, around us, you can pretty much be sure that something surprising that happens has got some cause or other, some explanation or other. But does that principle of, of cause and effect break down in the early universe? So some things can just happen without causes if they're, they're different enough from the world we see around us. And do you feel like are these one these, of the... These are all open. Right. Are these some of the questions that, like, the more we know, the more technology there is, the better these telescopes get, the more we can peer into deep space. It's just interesting to think that all this, the work that's being done on the astronomy side also affects the philosophy side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of it as, as, as one big project uh, that, that philosophers and physicists and historians and everybody are uh, kind of helping to do and kind of construct the, the, the story of the, the universe and how, how we got here. Has historically, has there always been a role, Alistair, for philosophers in the discussion of the origin of the universe? Yeah, I mean, but back Back, back in the day, there wasn't, there wasn't such a clear distinction between science and philosophy. There wasn't really even such a, a thing as science. It was kind of philosophers that were kind of were handed the job of, of understanding the universe. Um, and so th- th- there's been speculation tied up with, with religious speculation by philosophers for a really long time. Some of it, this, this is kind of you know, clear, clearing the way, help, helping us to think clearly about it and uh, avoid confusions. Some of it is, is theory building, just trying to imagine all the different, the different ways things could have, could have worked out so we can start exploring their consequences. And are there a, a number of different theories? Like, are there different ideas, different philosophers have different ideas? There's just all sorts of different theories about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say they fall into kind of, fall into families. And um, different philosophers will really differ in terms of how much they think that we should be looking to science primarily for the answers looking to religion, perhaps, uh, primarily for the answers here, or looking to some kind of some power of pure thought uh, that we have um, uh, for the answers. Of, of course, it's hard to see why human thinking should be an infallible insight to the way the universe is. And the, the, the power of science over, over the last few hundred years has really convinced a lot of people that, um, that, that, that the physics uh, is, is the right place to start with this. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you get you get huge amounts of disagreements about how to how to interpret some given theory, and especially in these areas where uh, any testing we do is, is is super indirect and difficult. There's an awful lot of room for interpretation and and different extrapolations. Well, that is so interesting. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. No problem. It's a pleasure. Have a great day. Well, thank you very much for your time on that. Now, that is Alistair Wilson, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Birmingham. This is Mornings with Simi. And let's talk some turkey today, shall we? Our Scott Chances with us. Scott, you had your turkey. Yes, I did. I actually, yesterday was a great day because I had two 
Thanksgiving dinners in one wow. day. How? I know. How? Well, How? so I had. I could barely have one. I know, well, it's all about pacing yourself. You know, you were talking about <laughs> earlier with John how you have to sort of anticipate the needs of the people and how much food you're going to create and stuff. See, I do that same thing because I, as much as I want to go back for a third and fourth Yorkshire pudding, I don't so that I can have room to not force the pie in, I can enjoy the pie, right? It's all, you got to pace yourself, Simmy. So I had a dinner, like, you know, on Thanksgiving, lots of people do their dinner at like three o'clock in the afternoon. I do mine at one. Yeah. So we had a dinner at my house, turkey with all the things very traditional at uh, three o'clock. And then I went to my sister's place for six 30 where we had beef Wellington, little non-traditional sort of uh, prime rib dinner there, which was, so I got turkey and How I got that as well. How are you not in a food coma by eight o'clock at night? It's all about the pacing, Simmy. It's all about the pace. I'm, I'm serious, you know? People looked at my plate and they're like, you don't seem very hungry. And I'm like, oh, no, no, this is a long game. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Wow. Okay. I am impressed by that because, you know, I, I was in a food coma by six o'clock in the evening, lying on the couch watching Gerard Butler's movie Plane, which by the way, fantastic. Really? Oh, okay. loved it. Good I love Gerard Butler. I'll watch it. <laughs> but it was the perfect post Thanksgiving meal movie to just completely go comatose yeah. on the couch and watch. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I don't go cr- so crazy because I know as well that especially if we're hosting the Thanksgiving, that there's going to be a fridge full of leftovers that I'm going to get to partake of for the next couple of days. So it's not like, oh, I need to get all this turkey right right now. There's going to be turkey sandwiches and leftover mashed potatoes and all of those things. And I'm like you. I think the leftovers are the best part. I love turkey sandwiches. So I'm always excited when we host. I'm thinking of, I, I had turkey and ham. Oh, yeah. And so I'm thinking of going home and making biscuits today so that we can have like ham biscuits. Oh, yeah. That sounds biscuits, good. Put a little stuffing in there. That sounds good. A little good. gravy on top of it. Yeah, that yeah. Good, right? I think this is smart because one of the things that I'm learning that you need to do with the leftovers is it, it, I like a turkey sandwich. I like having turkey in the kitchen so you can just pull it out and make a turkey sandwich quickly. But that in the fridge, turkey only lasts for about four days. Is that the rule? That Well, that's what I'm reading and discovering this morning is about four days. But if you freeze it or make something else with it, like turkey soup or biscuits or these type of things, then, of course, you can extend the lifespan. You make something else, you freeze it, you can keep it, make turkey stock. That what All of these things that the people in my life who are fantastic chefs do uh, to Are you pro- talking about like the it. turkey carcass? Because I deal with the carcass the day the turkey is eaten. Ah, okay. That thing, as we learned from our butterball expert who was on the show last week, and I, and I do do this, but I did it with more attention this time into detail, put it back in the oven. So while, you know, I'm starting the cleanup process, the carcass goes back in the oven, roasts up for, you know, gets really nice browned. That then goes into the pot right away. Turkey stock is on. Okay. Yeah. Smart. And then yesterday I did the, I did it again, heat it, reduce it, strained it. And so tonight there will be if it's all ready to go, hopefully it was taken care of after I went to bed. <laughs> uh, there will be turkey soup, and then perhaps I will also turn that into maybe turkey pot pie. Okay, yeah, that that's a fantastic one, turkey pot pie as well. And there's so many of these ones that people like to do. Uh, there's also members in my family that will just take the, the turkey, the mashed potatoes, the stuffing, the gravy, everything, and just reheat it and have a second turkey dinner. That's the dinner. first day. That's day one. Yeah. 
So do you have a plan for that? I have a plan for that. I, yes, I intend to do that. But this is one trick that I have learned because I think the only thing that does not keep and reheat as well as I want it to is the gravy. So we just have a simple, like, how do you reheat gravy? I'm going to tell you what I do, Scott. Okay, Here's a little trick for you. We just make a new gravy the next day. I agree. Right? You can do that yeah. too. But I also keep it because the gravy is the good stuff out of the drippings and right. all that kind of stuff. And, and that's the good prime gravy. So yes. I always make a lot As of opposed gravy. to like the packaged gravy that right. I use. So I do yeah, liters yeah. and liters of that, like wow. as much as I possibly so can. So how do you make that. it good? So, well, I um, I heat my food up, right? Mm-hmm. And so I make my, I heat my food up very hot. Then I put the cold gravy on top of it, okay. which kind of brings everything to the right temperature and ready to eat. Okay, interesting, because I would always put the gravy on and then heated it no, with No, because then it. I find it gets too hot yep. and it just gets too much. But if you take the cold gravy and just spoon it out, it just gets just the right consistency. Sure, yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm going to make a guess that you reheat in the stove and not the microwave. I... No, I do the microwave. Really? I do it by the bowl. I do it by the bowl. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I see, and this is one of my things: is I, I, uh, I, I know that it's better to do it in the stove. It comes out uh, more, you know, less microwavey, sort of more consistent, more like you've like it's fresh. But I just don't have the patience. You know, I, I um, like I want it now. I hear you on that one. Now, Chrissy has emailed me, and Chrissy, I'm so glad you did that because we did have this butterball expert on the show last week, and he said the number one thing, and you were on the Mike Smith show, so you okay. didn't hear this because it was early in the morning. The number one piece of advice that he could offer to people was never cook your turkey higher than three. 25. Okay. 325. Max, max do that. So Chrissy just wrote me to say, I followed the butterball chef instructions for dinner, like brined, boom, cooked at 325. She said, it was the best turkey we have ever had, said Chrissy. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. This will be permanent for our family. I mean, said. you should expect that level of uh, knowledge from a person who works for Butterball. Right, right. But he just said that is the secret. Like, it's not a big secret, but 325 max. See, it's patience. It's clearly, it's like patience and preparation in the in the making of the dinner and then in the reheating and also semi in the eating so that you can, it's like I was form. talking about off the, off the top, right? You have to pace yourself. You have to plan ahead. You know, this is, a, it's very I'm strategic hungry. a Thanksgiving dinner. I'm hungry now. Did you know that Greg bought me a piece of pumpkin pie this morning? Really? That was, was really nice of him. It was really, really well, good. Now I feel bad. I would have brought you, I made pumpkin cheesecake. What? And it was gone. So oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was gone. That's okay. <laughs> it was completely gone. <laughs> I might have to make a second one of those because it was so tasty. Yeah. So. I feel like I've already started my leftovers journey because I had pumpkin pie already for Delicious. breakfast. Delicious. All right. That's all good advice. Scott, thank four days. Four days. Use that That's turkey. right. All right. Thank you for that. That's our Scott Johnson. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Like, what are you doing with your leftovers? What is their favorite thing to do with your turkey leftovers? Let's hear that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right. Time for us on this Monday morning to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, so did you feel this earthquake on Vancouver Island? Uh, well, you know, Simi, I'm a trained observer and a professional. I've heard this. Yes. So when I looked uh, this morning at the feed and went, there was an earthquake last night, and Keith Baldry <laughs> felt it, uh, I felt nothing. And so I looked back at the uh, time log, and I concluded that the reason I felt nothing is. Uh, it's kind of a pathetic excuse, but um, I was on the exercise bike watching a movie, 
And any tremors were my aging knee complaining, why are you doing this to me? So uh, I felt nothing. I hope it was a good movie. Like, what movie were you watching? (laughs) Heaven's Gate. That's an oldie. That's a really oldie. You ever seen it? (laughs) Yes, of course. Chris Christopherson, right? The 216-minute version uh, compiled by Michael Cimino before he died. I don't know if it was 216 minutes, but I definitely watched it. It's a masterpiece. It, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie that was unfairly denounced and reviled when it came out oh, more than 40 years ago. Um, just uh, visually brilliant, great cast, it is beautiful. Uh, wonderful story. So there you go, a recommendation. I will. Ch- like I know I've watched it. In fact, not that long ago, probably about five years ago, which was the first yeah. time I'd watched it in its entirety. It was the, I think it was like it was a restored version that came out at that yeah. time. Yep. Uh, and that's Chris Christopherson, right? That's Chris Christopherson. Great performance. Terrific soundtrack. And there's a couple of scenes in it that are just magnificent, including the fiddler roller skating in the roller rink called Heaven's Gate. No, it's a great film. Christopher Walken, a really, really right. good movie. Yep. Okay, I'm going to add that to my rewatch list for sure. Uh, let's talk some politics this morning, too, because obviously that just keeps on going, including the Premier taking another run here at the B.C. Conservatives. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of New Democrats are just welcoming the presence of Uh, The B.C. Conservatives, knowing very well they're going to split the vote with uh, B.C. United, are expecting and hoping they will, embarrassing Kevin Falk. And the premier is really interesting on this. So the second time last week, he took a serious run at the Conservatives. Uh, The first time was in the House. Um, The second time was in the press conference on open drug use on Thursday, and near the end, uh, the Premier gets a couple of questions about the Conservatives, and he lets fly. He says, yes, 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 I know uh, they could benefit the NDP, but he said, I am distressed at the uh, the contribution of the Conservatives to the legislature their first week there. He accuses them of promoting toxic behavior, of courting lies, of spreading misinformation. He says, uh, this is like it's an incredible attack. He says they are contributing to importing the U.S. culture war into the United States, and he David Eby fears that the Conservatives will, are a threat to democracy. They will make it harder to govern British Columbia. So he's not on the fence on this one. This, is, uh, this goes beyond criticism of something the Conservatives said. This is branding the whole party a threat to democracy. And that's, as you point out, really interesting because... Yeah, that could be a benefit to the NDP. Yeah, no, I, you know, I talked to a couple of people about it, and, and, and this went beyond uh, the sort of perfunctory comments that politicians make uh, where they think the other side got it wrong. This, this I think, is David Eby speaking from the heart. Uh, you may think he's rhetorically over the top. You may think he's unfair to just John Rustad, and I think it's debatable whether the Conservatives have already shown themselves to be a threat to democracy. But the fundamental thing I'm hearing from David Eby here is that he looks south at the United States and sees that their political system is increasingly paralyzed on some issues involving the culture wars. And you can look it up to see all the issues there. 
you know, he says it hasn't helped the United States. It's hurt political discourse down there. It's made it harder to govern the United States. And he fears that the conservatives, by opening up these debates over SOGI and what books are in school libraries and other social conservative issues, he thinks the conservatives will make it harder to govern British Columbia. And at the same time, though, you've got BC United, where they're just kind of, they're, they're not going to pay that much attention to the BC conservatives. Yeah, I mean, BC United, they're downplaying the significance of the opinion polls that show the conservatives uh, ahead of them already. There's a poll last week that showed Leger that showed the, the BC United in third place. Uh, Kevin Falcon is saying that BC United hasn't had time to establish its name change yet, that many of the people who say they're voting conservative, 40% of them don't even know there's been a name change. He says that John Rusted is mainly surfing a wave created by Pierre Polyev and the Federal Party. So while he's downplaying the significance of the conservatives, as I said, David Eby is going beyond the usual mm. bounds of politicians attacking each other, and he's saying John Rustad and the conservatives are toxic and uh, a threat to fundamentals of British Columbia democracy. And we are back now with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. There's always more BC politics to talk about. And it's interesting, Vaughn, that all this discussion about bail reform, and we haven't really moved that ball forward. No, we haven't. We've been talking about this for over a year now. We've had the horror stories. Uh, you know the narrative, uh, some act of mayhem or violence by a repeat offender. Uh, he's arrested. Uh, prosecutors look at it and go, there's no point in laying charges. The courts will let them out. Or they go in front of a judge and the judge citing directives of the Supreme Court of Canada and the criminal code and says, "Not, nah, we have to let them out. So, and they're back on the street and more mayhem, more violence, repeat, repeat, repeat. It's a, it's such a familiar narrative that it's hard to keep straight all the details of all the cases, but there are a lot of them. So David Eby uh, yesterday or last week in the house, uh, first week of question period, the Liberals' opposition, uh, the party formerly known as the Liberals, BC United, uh, brings up the latest case. It's been well reported on Global. Why does this keep happening? They accuse the New Democrats of running a revolving door justice system. As I say, this is a familiar narrative. Premier gets up and says, well, that's why we've been pressuring Ottawa for reform of the criminal code to make it harder for repeat and violent offenders to get bail. We know that story, too. Last spring, the federal government brought in legislation to do just that, then didn't pass it. But they passed it first day back in fall parliament. All parties supported it. So after all that, Simi, why is it still happening? Because the reform still hasn't happened, even though Parliament, House of Commons, passed the legislation. It's still before the Senate. It hasn't passed the Senate yet. And until it does, you can talk about it all you want, but the reform is not there on the books. The hands of the judges are still tied and of prosecutors, and so we keep getting this narrative again and again. And again, it sounds like with the Senate, they've decided that they have some questions about it. 
Yes. So the Senate's uh, Legal and Constitutional Affairs uh, Committee is holding hearings on the legislation. So all that really happened last month when Parliament sat for the fall session is House of Commons, uh, the elected members of the House of Commons under extraordinary pressure from their constituents, all parties agree to put the bill through the House. So Bill C-48 passes, and when it's law, it should make it harder uh, sure, it should make it easier to withhold bail from repeat and violent offenders. Should. We haven't tested that yet. But the Senate is uh, independent, and the senators aren't accountable to the public because they're there for until they're 75, and they're holding hearings on it. And there have been a bunch of hearings. Uh, our Attorney General of British Columbia, Nikki Sharma, addressed that committee by virtual hookup on Thursday of last week, about the same time as the Premier was being asked about this in the House. And she told the Senate that, get on with it, basically. Uh, She says she was respectfully listened to and that she answered all their questions. But I note going over the number of other people that have spoken to that committee, Simi, is that the witness list was pretty heavily stacked with uh, civil liberty advocates, justice reform, progressive voices, lawyers, all of whom say this is not the way to go. It will simply be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Canada or and or it will lead to greater incarceration of people from marginalized groups, particularly indigenous people. So there's still a lot of opposition to this uh, and it's not clear when the Senate is going to act and it's not even 100% clear that they will act. So, Vaughn, what do you think was the Liberal liberal government's purpose in this then, in, in saying, yeah, we're just going to send it through to the Senate, we're all done with it? Like, well, do they want the Senate to hold it up because they were trying to get the premiers off their back? Like, what what is this all about? Well, you know, that's an interesting way to put it. I think they were trying to get both groups off their back. I think they were trying to get the opponents of this off the back, their back by saying, hey, you want to go talk about what's wrong with this bill? The Senate's going to hold hearings, uh, so go talk to them. And I think they were also saying to the provinces uh, and to their own constituents that, hey, we're dealing with this. We brought in the legislation. Don't complain to us. Uh, tell, your, tell your senator to do something with it. I mean, I think the momentum is still there, Simi, to get this done. But will it be in place by the end of the year? And the other thing, Simi, if you look at the critics of this thing, and they are uh, a minority in the country, but lots of them, especially in the universities and the, you know, the academic community and uh, justice reform advocates, there's, uh, I'm sure, a group of lawyers out there just circling, waiting to get these cases in front of the judges and send the whole thing back into the court system in hopes that the Supreme Court of Canada will say, nope, this doesn't pass muster, and let all these people out again. So this doesn't sound like it's going anywhere. Well, uh, you know, I think it's not 100% fair for the opposition to blame the government. The government has tried, the New Democrats, took them a while to come around, I give you that, uh, but it, it, they are trying to do something now, but, you know, if the, if the, the judges are independent, uh, they're beyond reach. Uh, the prosecutors, well, you know, the province has been telling prosecutors to err on the side of opposing bail for repeat violent offenders. 
But province's own statistics, Simi, show that in a lot of cases, the prosecutors are arguing uh, to say, don't grant this person bail, and bail is granted. And the person immediately goes out and ignores their bail conditions. So there's a real struggle going on here about judicial philosophy and the way forward. And it's not clear how it's going to come out, whether or not this is really going to solve the problem that, you know, I do think the government set out to try to solve this problem, at least minimize the number of horror stories out there, left itself open to the charge that the opposition is making, which is that, you know, they're running a revolving door justice system. But when the premier says, hey, we're trying to get the law changed and The Premier said last week he's sorry that Parliament didn't put the law through last spring, sent his Attorney General down to tell the Senate to get on with it. They are trying to lobby to get the legal change in place. It's just taking a lot longer than they thought it would. All right, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk housing this morning, because, you know, with mortgage rates the way they are these days, it's going to be a while before... Quite a few people can get on that property ladder or feel like they have the financial confidence to be able to do so. And for those that are lucky enough to have a home, well, that home might need some work, maybe a lot of work. In fact, Statistics Canada has come out with new data that shows millions of Canadian homes are in need of repairs, especially rental housing. And that is making housing even more unaffordable. What about that challenge? Well, to learn more about it, we're joined now by Avi Friedman, who's the professor and director of the Affordable Homes Research Group at the McGill School of Architecture and a specialist in sustainable residential design. Avi, thanks so much for being here. Hello, thank you. Now, can you explain how big of a problem is this? Like, how many homes are in need of repair in Canada? Um, it is a, a huge problem because the majority of Canada's housing stock was built in the 60s and 70s. And uh, those homes are now rapidly deteriorating. Their capacity or ability to retain energy, for example or their windows, they're all in a state that need to be repaired and changed. So I believe that in the next few years, you will see uh, a massive move uh, into attempt to renovate them. But nonetheless, at the moment, it is uh, a very big problem. So is there a particular group of people or age group that are more affected by this than others? In your introduction, you mentioned rental units. People who would like to renovate their home may apply and get loans to do so from uh, banks. But the situation with rental units is even more severe. Landlords are not obliged in most places to renovate their places. In fact, as we see here in Montreal and in other places in Canada, there is a phenomenon called renoviction. And that was, it is in the best interest, in some cases, that tenants will leave their premise because then the landlord can rent the same place, perhaps for a higher amount. Oh, let so me tell what, you, Avi, we are very well aware of renoviction out here in Vancouver. <laughs> it is very common. It's a huge problem. It is a huge problem because in some cases, uh, a landlord are making sure or, uh, uh, that the homes will not be repaired 
people even then in some cases they turn the building into a condominium and sell it for a huge profit now uh, unfortunately tenants have little say in that there are some places that have authorities that make sure that uh, that the landlord will do their job but in many cases uh, there is issue with molding with leaking and unfortunately no one stands for their rights and often tenants are vulnerable and they tend to leave the place rather than uh, stand for their rights right I wonder if that's part of the problem too then is that tenants in this environment are afraid to say I need this fixed in my rental home because then they're afraid well, then I'm going to get kicked out or the rent is going to go up. And it's so precarious, isn't it? It, It's absolutely the case because uh, first, in order to claim their rights, tenants need to go to authorities and, and get a lawyer and sue the landlord. This is no doubt time consuming element uh, and, uh, and cost, you know, uh, that they may not have. Nobody wants to get engaged with lawyer and start to go to courts and so on. So usually they are quiet. They live in very appalling conditions, some of which uh, are, are at risk to their personal health. Molding is a healthy, healthy risk. Uh, uh, lower temperature or leaky windows is something that costs tremendous amount of money to eat. They have to use their own energy, their own heating system, because they cannot rely on the location. This is in cold places in the winter. But it is, as you pointed out, a very, very serious concern. So how... How do we tackle this then? Do you have to encourage the private owner, homeowner, the landlords? Uh, do they have to also get loans for rental housing to fix up their rental properties? Like, I don't know, where do you even start to tackle this? You know, if you see uh, the policy of the government, of the Canadian government, they paid a great deal of attention to building new dwellings, new homes. But there was very little attention that was given to those who live in rental homes in in object, in very poor conditions. And I believe that attention, I'm very pleased that you brought attention to this subject. I believe that so much uh, attention needs to be placed on those tenants. So where do we start? I believe that there needs to be initiative by municipalities or a, a place to which tenants will be able to go and those services, legal services, going after the landlord need to be done in a coordinated fashion by authorities because, as I pointed out, tenants have no money to pay lawyers and go to courts. They're usually uh, are very busy people. And unfortunately, those inf- this infrastructure legal infrastructure is no is not in place at the moment. Are we in danger do you think of losing low cost housing because of the need for repair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, what we see across Canada and I'm sure that in Vancouver what we uh, uh, see is reluctant on the part of investors to build rental housing. They recognize that due to the fact that the market is extremely hot and whatever you build, you sell, why shall we get into building?
building rental accommodation. So in the past uh, decades, we see a dramatic decrease in the number of rental housing, affordable rental housing, being constructed. And these have no doubt affect primarily lower-income people because they cannot, they cannot afford to buy a home, and rental is the only solution they have. Some of them are working or they have to go very far. The situation is, in this regard, in my opinion, pretty grim when it comes to rental housing. Well, Avi, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. That's Avi Friedman, professor and director of the Affordable Homes Research Group at the McGill School of Architecture and a specialist in sustainable residential design. We're talking about the the kind of the poor condition, Statistics Canada has identified this, the poor condition of of rental housing or so much housing in Canada that the need for repairing it is a huge cost that is another impairment when it comes to affordable housing. So you can build it, but then it has to be maintained. That's something a lesson that a lot of homeowners learn, but if you're building it or if you're buying it and it's a rental property, like do you put as much maintenance into it? And now, you know, renters obviously afraid of saying anything because they don't want to see their rent go up either. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I feel like we're opening a bit of a Pandora's box this morning on this next topic, but hey, let's do it because we're going to talk about speeding. I think we generally understand that there is such a thing as going too fast. You always recognize that person on the road that is going too fast, right? But what about going too slowly? Is there such a thing? I was reading this story actually from Wales over the weekend, and it's really fascinating because the Welsh government has implemented a default speed limit, a new one on most of the roads there, and it is down to 32 or so kilometers per hour. They go miles per hour. So it's 20 miles per hour. For us, it would be about 32 kilometers per hour. So they say this is going to reduce accidents. It's going to save lives. It's going to curb air pollution. But come on, that's kind of slow, right? We have construction zones that are 30 kilometers an hour, and I don't see anybody going that speed limit. So this has resulted in hundreds of thousands of people in Wales signing a petition telling the government they do not like this at all, even though the government keeps saying, listen, research supports this, it's it's effective, it means that 95% of pedestrians are going to walk away unharmed if there is an accident with a vehicle and a pedestrian, but all of that, a lot of people are still very upset about it. So we wanted to talk about this. How effective is a lower speed limit? Clarence Woodsmuts with us now, an assistant vice president, graduate studies, University of Waterloo's Faculty of Environment. Clarence, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, do we? Is this a good idea to lower a speed limit to thirty kilometers per hour? It depends on the context, of course, right? So, you know, in a lot of instances where you might have high traffic, high speed areas, you know, rolling through a residential neighborhood, or we, of course, know that in school zones, it makes sense to have a 30 kilometer an hour speed limit. Trying to adopt it blanket wide um, can be a bit challenging for sure, right? People are going to react to it negatively, as you're seeing in Wales. Oh, man, they are really upset about it in Wales, for sure. Uh, What is the problem with just getting people in general to obey speed limit? I feel like people are not very good at doing that. Of course not, right? I mean, on average, 
about half the drivers on a given road would be exceeding the speed limit at any given time, right? So we know that as we drive around, we think, oh, the speed limit's only 50, but yeah, you know, I can usually do 60 and get away with it. So you have this sense that people are always going faster than the posted speed limit anyway. Um, and of course, that becomes an issue when we have accidents or as we've seen in the U.S., a rising fatalities for pedestrians, right? So we think about our city areas where we have a mixture of pedestrians, cyclists, delivery drivers, e-scooters, etc. It's all about trying to find that appropriate balance where it's safe for everyone. Is there an appropriate balance? Like, how do we find that? Yeah, you again, it depends on the context. You look at areas of Vancouver, obviously, if it's a, an expressway, the class of roads where we're trying to move large volumes of traffic quickly, that higher speed limit is appropriate. But for a lot of our city areas, um, you know, for too long, the automobile has been given sort of this primacy. Everyone thinks that it's all about cars and they should have, you know, the right to go as fast as people feel like they need to go. But cities are ultimately for people. And so if we consider pedestrians, cyclists, people riding transit, again, I think it makes more sense to try and achieve something that uh, works for everyone. Oh boy, Clarence, I feel, <laughs> you know how people feel about this when you start talking about sharing the road. For some reason, people don't like sharing the road. Well, and, and, and that's part of, you know, I think uh, the psychology of the automobile. People really appreciate that we're in their vehicle, it's their car, they control the environment, the heat, the radio, unless, of course, you're with your spouse and maybe you're arguing about what to listen to on the radio. But it is that sense of, you know, it's my vehicle. I get to do what I want. Um, and that's a tough psychology to fight against, right? This idea that, no, it's not just about you. The fact is you're only one entity in this larger, complex city that we're living in. And it's about you know, being respectful of others on the road as well. It's a tough one for sure. And Vancouver knows this all too well. Right. I feel like we feel that way when we're in a car. But then if the same person is a pedestrian, we feel that way about being a pedestrian. Yeah. Or, you know, it's interesting, even things like in cycle lanes now, I've seen research that e-bikes are now kind of like the SUVs of bike lanes where, oh you know, because they're they're bigger, they're faster, right? It's kind of like, you know, I'm the one that's in charge here. Um, it's a tough psychology to, to battle against. And maybe rather than speaking with a transportation planner, you should speak with a psychologist. But um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, is part, that is part of the challenge, right? And, that's a lifetime of research for a psychologist. But what you're able to tell us as a transportation planner, though, is what works? Do lower speed limits in certain areas work? Absolutely. They save lives, right? That's the, the key thing. And not only do they save lives, but research also points out that there's other health benefits as well. So things like noise, for example, uh, air pollution, you know, these are things that don't underestimate the fact that, you know, if we have quieter, calmer neighborhoods, right? It's better for your psychology. It's better for your sleeping habits, for example. You don't have people racing around uh, all night long. So there's lots of other benefits that go along this list as well. Like generally the, the city vitality, like it's just a healthier environment for everyone in the city. So more than the safety there's also emissions benefits as well, although those are a little bit tougher to identify because we're still, you know, if it's not an EV, an electric vehicle, you still have pollution, you still have brake dust and tire wear, et cetera. Um, but definitely from a noise and from a safety standpoint, the, the benefits are clear. Oh, it's so interesting. Clarence, thank you for that. 
No problem. My pleasure. That's Clarence Woodsma, an assistant vice president, transportation planner, graduate studies, University of Waterloo's faculty of environment, talking about how in Wales they've gone ahead and they've pretty much lowered the speed limit on most of the roads to about 30 kilometers per hour. It would be 20 miles per hour there. And so that means traffic has really slowed down and people are not happy. And it's interesting that the pollution argument is being used because some residents in Wales are saying, well, this is actually creating more traffic back up because people are going so slowly and so therefore it's leading to more traffic kind of jams, hence more they feel emissions. So it's going to be a very interesting experiment to watch. So do you think that in some areas we could lower that speed limit perhaps? Or do you think absolutely not? We already go slow enough out there. People love to go fast, that's for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's turn our attention now to what is happening in Israel, where a surprise attack by Hamas during a Jewish holiday against even civilians at events like a music festival is having ripple effects all over the world. There are so many questions about how it was planned and and why now and who helped. So right now we're going to talk about the situation and why there is this discussion about how this seems to be different from previous incursions in fighting that we have seen in that area. Joining us now is Yael Aronoff, who's a professor of political science and international relations at Michigan State University. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Why is this being called a, a different situation? Why does it feel different this time? It's different because it would be like 10 9-11s um, that happened in Israel this weekend in terms of the ratio of population um, with uh, 700 civilians being killed. As you said, 260 young people at a peace music festival, um, people being killed in their homes on the streets. Uh, a friend of mine had his daughter and son-in-law killed Saturday morning um, by Hamas terrorists, and they were covering the son who shot in stomach who survived. We have uh, little children and uh, old people who have been taken hostage. Um, if this were for the, um, if in the United States, it would be as if 25,000 uh, people uh, were uh, killed intentionally in the United States over the weekend. And I think in terms of Canada's population, it would be over 2,660 uh, people who would have been killed. Um, so that's why it's something different. Um, it, it's just the magnitude of slaughter and massacre and terror uh, that has happened and people coming um, over ground, underground, over sea, uh, over 4,400 rockets. Um, it's just the sheer magnitude of it and the horror of it. Why? Can we talk a little bit about as well um, the reaction to this in terms of the fact that they're saying that there was no information about this, that there was no intelligence about this? What is that? What do we know at this point about the, the process that led up to this? I mean, we don't know enough and don't know uh, much yet. We know that it was a, a, a disaster in terms of the the government and in terms of the intelligence. Um, and, you know, with people in the government and the security cabinet, with people like Ben Gvir, who's an extremist as the national security minister who's never served in the military, um, we don't have the most experienced people at the helm. Um, and also the the government has been preoccupied with trying to weaken the Supreme Court as opposed to, 
ensure uh, security for the people. So this is not the time now uh, for uh, things to be investigated and for blame, but the time now to protect citizens and so forth and to uh, try to get the hostages back, with, uh, perhaps through eventual negotiations as well. Um, but, uh, hmm. yeah, this is a colossal, colossal failure of intelligence and of, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what yeah. do you think of the reaction so far, like, from the international community? I mean, I think from what I've seen, it's largely um, sympathetic and empathetic uh, in terms of the massacre and slaughter of uh, civilians in Israel um, and the right for Israel to defend itself. I, of course, feel for Palestinians as well. Hamas did this huge uh, initiation and provocation, knowing that Israel would come into the Gaza Strip and inviting it and knowing that more civilians would be killed. Um, And so it's just horrific for also Palestinian civilians uh, to be suffering in this way. uh, As you know, and uh, I just hope for... um, a peace as quickly as possible. I can't help thinking that one of Hamas's motivations was to try to destroy hopes of reaching a Saudi-Israeli um, normalization that hopefully would also hinge on a uh, process towards Palestinian independence uh, for a two-state solution. But Hamas has always opposed the two-state solution um, and is one of the reasons um, that there's no independent Palestinian state now. Because during the 90s, when there was supposed to be a process towards a two-state solution, it's up to all its suicide bombings in Israel because it didn't want an independent Palestinian state in part of the land. It wanted independent Palestinian state in all of the land. And it certainly has been a spoiler um, uh, from then until now. Um, and what? I hope that the government also, though, uh, will act in a restrained um, manner, uh, although Hamas makes it very difficult <laughs> um, to go after it and, and try to find hostages when they embed themselves among civilians. So it's just a horrible, horrible, horrible trap uh, that they've set. And I hope that Israel can respond wisely, that the international community still understands all the difficulties that are there and that they all help towards getting to a negotiated eventual uh, solution and peace agreement based on a two-state solution and, and help. Let's talk help about the, the what this means for the, the region as well, too, because there's there's been dis- talk about, oh, Iran helped Hamas plan this, and uh, this was because of Israel, you know, working towards a, a more normalized relationship with Saudi Arabia. Like, how much do you think all of that plays in here, too? I think it's a strong possibility. I mean, we all know that Hamas um, uh, trains Hamas and Islamic Jihad at times, supplies them all these sophisticated weapons and rockets, trains them, shares doctrine with them, as well as with from Hezbollah. They have video conferences together. Um, it, there's no question that there's uh, a backing of Hamas and Islamic Jihad um, and coordination. Now, to what extent they were directly behind it? Um, we don't have sufficient evidence at this point, but it seems like uh, it, 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 they certainly got some support um, from Iran that, of course, is celebrating everything right now. But uh, so, And I'm sure that part of Iran's motivation was to try to spoil any attempts at normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But more, we need more evidence in terms of the exact uh, plans for this exact operation. But the weapons that were used from, were from Iran. Some of the training was from Hezbollah and Iran. Um, so they were definitely involved. 
So this is, there's still a lot more questions here, aren't there? Yeah. Like we're just early days. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time for that this morning. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone can be compassionate and respectful for how Israelis are feeling, Jews are feeling, Palestinians are feeling um, at this time and the suffering that is ensuing. So um, thank you so much. I hope so, too. Thank you for your time. That's Yael Aronoff, who's a professor of political science and international relations at Michigan State University. There is a lot still developing with this as of this morning, Israel announced that it is ordering a complete siege of Gaza as they're working to secure that border. What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know, as, as Yael pointed out now, it does feel like all bets are off and it's going to be a very tense and difficult situation. Uh, we'll continue to have your updates on that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk some football. Rick Campbell joins us now, head coach of the BC Lions. We're going to break down that last game. Good morning, coach. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Did you have your turkey? Last night. Okay, yeah, good. last night. We're back. We're back practicing today, so we don't get a we don't get a day off today. No, but you got your turkey. That's important too, because we have to talk about what happened with that last game with Winnipeg. Um, it didn't quite go the way we planned, did it? Yeah, that was a that was an emotional a regular season game. I'd been around in a long time, so it was a it was a big game in the standings. Yeah, you know, we ended up uh, losing the game in overtime and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it took our guys a couple of days to get over it, but uh, we're going to be on to the next. We start practicing for Hamilton today. Okay, and the Lions were leading for most of the game, and that's also probably why they took it so hard. So what happened, do you think? Yeah, they just made the plays at the end, and we didn't. I mean, it literally came down to one or two plays, and um, I think that's, you know, that's that's where the the losses can be tough because you always can play that what-if game, you know, if we'd just done this or if we'd just done that. Um, so the, the good news is, is we can play with anybody and, uh, but you know, we're going to have to keep improving these last couple of weeks and, uh, you know, keep going. Are the players tough on themselves? I was reading about how like Dominic Rimes was hard on himself for what happened there at the end, but it's not any one person, right? No, they are hard on themselves. We have a tendency to do that. <laughs> All of us have a tendency to do that of being too hard on ourselves. So um, you know, as long as we use it as fuel um, for you know for motivation for going forward, then uh, we'll be just fine, and we'll be able to do some good stuff in the playoffs. Okay, so you're off to Hamilton now. You've got a game coming up in about four days or so. What? How do you prepare for Hamilton? Yeah, so we're Hamilton Friday night at uh, four o'clock this time, and uh, they're a team that's been getting better. So, um, but I know we're excited to play them. They they beat us at home, so. You know, we we owe those guys. We need to get out there and and get back in the win column, and um, and then we only have one more game after that against Calgary, and then it's a uh, playoff time. I know we're giving away tickets to go and see you guys play Calgary. So is is it hard at this point because you know you're the team knows they're in the playoffs, the players know they are there, but is it hard to keep them focused, perhaps a little bit on the regular season? Well, we have two games. We play both our. We have two games left, and we play them both before Winnipeg even plays again because they're on a bye week. So. We want to keep the pressure on those guys. Winnipeg still has to win another game to get first. So if we can, uh, you know, if we can string a couple wins together here, we'll keep the pressure on them, which would be a, which would be a good thing. Oh, you can do that. Okay, we'll be rooting for you. All right, thanks. Have, have a, a good, good day. Week. Have a good week. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. This is Mornings with Simi. 
I love this next topic we're going to be chatting about with our Scott Shunts because, Scott, I know you've heard me rant about this. Yeah, before. totally. <laughs> Absolutely. About what is the matter with people. They do something, and we're talking about mainly like politicians here, right? They do something shameless. They do something that we view as wrong, and yet they still won't step aside. They're, they're going to try to tough it out. Yes. It just feels like there's no shame anymore, yes. you know? And I don't wish anyone to like actually be ashamed or have shame or anything like that. But that used to be like the thing that kind of held us all to account, you know, this like basic human decency where we look to the betterment of ourselves and, and to others. And I think the thing where, where it really sort of hit me, uh, and I think probably for a lot of people, was around the Speaker of the House thing that happened recently yes. where, you know, he said he wasn't going to step down when everyone thought that he should after, you know, the Nazi incident that we all know about. And then the next day decided that he did step down. If he had just stepped down in the first place. None of that would have happened. That's right. He would have gained back some dignity, right? He would have said, no, I know, you know, but now he just looks like he made it worse. He made it worse for himself. And so I just wonder, I'm like, why does no one take accountability for their actions? No one seems to have any dignity anymore. So I got in touch with Dr. Donna Hicks. She is sort of considered the world's foremost dignity expert. She teaches on it. She's written two books on it and uh, really has some great insights on like how this kind of relates to a lot of the problems that we're kind of seeing in today. And I asked her just like to start off, like, why, why does it seem like nobody cares about dignity anymore? I, I think more than uh, anything else the, that the ignorance, Scott, surrounding this issue of dignity is so pervasive. Um, and so it's typical for people, at least in my experience, it's typical for people in positions of power and authority to want to cover up um, and not be held accountable for their actions. And so, I mean, that is sort of like our human default response. You know, we have these automatic responses within our brains. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of research to support this, to understand this, that, you know, instead of coming clean, if we make a mistake or if we, you know, fail at something, we'd rather not look bad in the eyes of others. And also we'd rather not lose the position of power and authority that comes along with that, you know, the position of, uh, uh, a politician or a leader of, of one kind or another. So it's, you know, it, people fall into this trap all the time. They try to cover up, they try to deceive, they don't take responsibility. They think, oh, this will just pass and I'll be okay. But that is just the opposite. Like you were saying, there is not, that's the opposite of a dignified response to one's actions. And if you've done people harm, uh, especially a person in power, uh, it is absolutely crucial to, in my view of this dignity concept. We have to hold ourselves accountable. And the only way to do that is to fight the vulnerability, fight that fear that you think you're going to look weak, you're going to look bad. Because the truth is, Scott, vulnerability is where the truth resides. And if you are committed to truth, then you have to come clean when um, when you do someone harm or you create a situation that does many people harm. It's just it's just what leading with dignity looks like.
Yeah, I'm actually I'm writing that down as we're talking. But vulnerability is where the truth resides. It seems like there's a lot yep. of power in that, especially in like a a culture where um, it seems like the truth is kind of what what is sort of described as the truth sort of has become a bit mired and a bit kind of like blurred a little bit as people sort of say like, well. Um, you know, we hear terms like fake news and and other things. And um, yeah, that's just your opinion or it's subjective, that type of thing. Um, can you talk a bit about maybe why we don't um, value dignity as well as we should, even though we understand that it is the better thing to do? Well, it has to do with the evolution of our consciousness as human beings. And at this point, Scott, um, all my research shows that we are more, as I said, more concerned about preserving power uh, at, at whatever price that is, looking good in the eyes of others and not having that experience where you get caught at doing something that is you know, reprehensible or harmful to others. And I, I just think that, again, I go back to this, sta this state of ignorance that most of us are, are living in. You know, I, I wrote this book about dignity because I could see it playing out in the international conflicts that I was mediating all mm, over the world. Right. People were afraid. They were so afraid to say, yeah, we did that or, you know, and it's, it's self-preservation at its finest. You know what my campaign has been? Uh, over the years of the last decade that I've been working on this issue of dignity is to get people to just understand the basics about what we're up against as human beings. All of us are fearful of looking bad in the eyes of others. But in order to progress as not only our individual consciousness, but the consciousness of the collective of human beings writ large, we have to take a look at ourselves. We have to take a look at the consequences of our actions and the harm or the good. You know, it could be either way. But in this case, it's the harm that we're creating with others because we just don't know. I mean, let me just say one thing, Scott, that was fundamental and getting and achieving this consciousness for myself, I studied social, social neuroscience. And what I discovered with, in, that, um, in that journey was that our brains don't know the difference between a wound to our physical being and a wound to our dignity. So they show up, these dignity assaults, these dignity violations, they show up in the brain in the same area as if you had a broken leg or suffered a physical injury. And I mean, to me, that speaks volumes because it, it says, look, we have to pay attention to these dignity issues because if we don't, we're just doing harm after harm after harm. We would never allow this to take place in the physical realm. We, you know, we have laws to protect ourselves from being physically injured. We need the same kind of consciousness about the effect that we're having on each other by treating each other badly, by covering up our mistakes, by not admitting the truth. And, um, you know, no matter how you look at it, uh, Scott, in my view, it just takes, it's going to take an evolution of our consciousness. And we are just nowhere near that right now. How maybe how can we develop that type of consciousness that you're talking about on an individual level? Maybe if there's like people that are listening and they think to themselves, yes, like I see this, I recognize this in myself. How can sure. I as an individual train myself or develop a, a more dignified 
um, way of thinking. So let me just give you some really good news, Scott. (laughs) Some really good news is that a lot of teachers and a lot of schools are taking on this issue of teaching their students, uh, and I'm talking K through 12 as well as higher ed. They are committed to teaching, um, giving students opportunity to learn about dignity. There's dignity curriculum all over the, the country and other, other places in the world as well. So that's the good news, because I think if we're going to have uh, any a fight or an attack on this ignorance that I just talked about, we have to start you know, early and so that kids, it becomes part of their consciousness. Dr. Donna Hicks, she is the author of Dignity, Its Essential Role in Resolving Conflict and Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hicks. Really, really appreciate the time. And thank you for the work that you're doing, um, trying to, you know, actually make the world a more dignified place. I really appreciate it. Simi, vulnerability is where the truth lies. Write that down. (laughs) Okay. I will do that. But there's so much here that is so deep in the human psyche. Like, is it a fear of humiliation? So we we don't want to admit that we did something wrong? Yeah. Or we don't want to give up power? I think it's that. I think it's that we're worried that if I do this, I am going to end up on the outs as opposed to being, you know, part of the inside group where the money is and where the fun and the happiness are and stuff, even though... But that's the whole point. Yeah. I know and that's the, that's the hard thing, but like, what are we, what are we giving up to get to that? You know, our dignity. And that's a shame because that thing runs out. The money runs out, the coolness, the fame, the power, whatever that runs out. Well, the dignity obviously runs out too, because do you want people, do you care what people think? Like, do you want to have some idea that people look at you and go, you know what? That person did the right thing. Or do you want them to look at you and go, God, I can't believe that person didn't do the right thing. Yeah. I want them to think I did the right thing. I guess we don't know until you're tested. That's the trick, right? <laughs> and please, then, don't me. please don't test please me. Don't, like, wood right <laughs> totally. don't don't test me. Please, don't knock right now. Don't jinx that. Don't think that. Scott, thank you, you for that it. discussion. Sure. So interesting. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to talk about ghost guns. What is a ghost gun? Well, it's a firearm that doesn't have serial numbers. It may have been assembled from parts or... Scary as it sounds, may have been assembled from parts of a 3D printer doing the doing the work, essentially. Well, reports have indicated that there are more of them showing up at crime scenes, but here's the thing. We are not keeping track of them. The RCMP says it is not maintaining records on the use of ghost guns in crime. So if that's the case, how can we even figure out how big of a problem this is? Well, joining us now is Rod Giltaka, who's a president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. Rod, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Do you think this is a problem? Like, are we, are we seeing more ghost guns out there? Well, police tell us that they are seeing more ghost guns. And the problem, well, the, the main problem is, is that they're not keeping track of how many crime scenes have ghost guns found there. So... It's, you know, good information makes good policy. So police are saying, well, this is a growing problem, but they can't say, you know, how much, uh, how many of these firearms are ghost guns, which are clearly illegal. Then we don't know where to focus those law enforcement and legislative resources. Right. And that's a problem then for people who also legally have firearms. It's a huge problem, right? So if if there's a, a very high percentage of handguns that are found at crime scenes that are ghost guns, clearly those aren't, those aren't coming from licensed gun owners. And as you well know, right now, about 95% of the legislative resources are aimed at people that are members of shooting clubs and 
and have registered um, firearms and that are licensed gun owners. And that's that's bad for everybody. It's bad for gun owners and bad for public safety. And Rod, where do you think this reluctance seems to be coming from? Like, police can track this. They don't need to be told to track this, do they? Well, it, it, that, that's, it's, yeah, it's strange. Um, police, uh, or I guess NWEST, uh, doesn't keep track of um, what crimes were committed by licensed gun owners, which is information that's readily available. StatCan doesn't track that either. They don't track ghost guns. There's a lot of things, a lot of information that would be really useful in forming policy if we had. And it is, it's, it's dismaying certainly for licensed gun owners because we're the ones that are always facing the brunt of, uh, of the, I guess you could say, the, uh, the reaction or the punishment for the actions of criminals. And if, they, uh, if we had better information, it would be a far more educated conversation. Right. What about in other jurisdictions? For instance, have you heard, like, is this a problem in the United States? Well, I think it's a problem everywhere because criminals are, you know, they take the, the path of least resistance. So if, it's, if it becomes more difficult to smuggle firearms in, then they can use 3D printers um, and, uh, and firearm parts uh, to, to create guns that can't be tracked and that they can sell on the street for, you know, sometimes $5,000. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a huge problem. And, and in around the conversation, I think the biggest thing that, that people forget is no matter what happens, you can't stop people from even making guns out of real, real steel. Right. There's CNC milling machines are out there. They're not regulated. They could actually make real guns out of real materials that are that are durable. So at the end of the day, our problem is violence. So if you don't if you don't want the violence and you have to go after the social determinants of violence, you have to. It's a demand side problem is is the position that we've held. Okay. so but how do you then make adequate like do you punish or have stiffer criminal penalties then for ghost gun manufacturers for distributors like how do you crack down on it in a way that does offer that deterrent well you're going to have to you're going to have to invest in, in investigative resources so you have to find a way to find the people that are manufacturing these guns and police have have found uh, manufacturing operations uh, as well but you know un- unfortunately if someone is in jail they can't manufacture guns. So you're, we're, we're going to, as a society, we're going to have to say, well, here's the rules, and these rules are going to be enforced. And right now, if you look at the courts, when it comes to smuggling uh, and trafficking and these types of offenses, the courts aren't handing out stiff sentences. They're really lax uh, on that. And those people, as you also know, we have a, a real problem with, uh, with prolific offenders. So we're just going to have to decide, do we want the violence uh, or do we want to put the people that are enabling this violence and, and committing it in jail. So, Rod, do you think then that it, there's a better way to do this? Like, we can tackle some of these issues, just it's how we tackle them. Well, for me, the, uh, dealing with the social determinants of violence, excuse me, is really important. Um, and it's important as an organization that represents licensed gun owners because if public safety increases, that leaves all the people that aren't doing the harm that own firearms alone. It's a win-win for us. So the, and, and attacking those social determinants is really hard work, and it takes more than four years. And that's why you don't see next to no work doing, you know, being done on that front, because it's very difficult, and it's not glamorous. It's not like you can have a, a press conference and then talk about banning guns. That's, that's very politically convenient. But it doesn't help um, the everyday Canadian. So we'd like to see a lot more uh, resources pointing at, at ending the violence. And all of these problems will start to improve. You'll never stop everything. 
but an improvement is a great place to start. Right, but then why don't police advocate for that? I mean, obviously, they, they could do their job better if they had more information, too, couldn't they? Well, this is the frustrating part, right? I mean, I think anyone that's, that, that, is, uh, that is focused on this issue knows the types of information that we need. And, you know, it seems like we have two, three, four billion dollars for a gun buyback only from licensed gun owners. But we don't have an additional 15, 20, 30 million dollars to start aggregating this data, whatever that costs. I'm not an expert on what that data would uh, cost to aggregate. But this is this is the frustration. And uh, as you know, it leads to a really, really negative political conversation when it comes to gun control and violence and and the role of licensed gun owners, it's a, it's a bit of a mess. It's, I think it's going to take leadership. Right, because it seems to me that for the general public, then the discussion becomes about legal <clears throat> guns versus illegal guns, like who's registering them and who's not registering. But there's so much nuance there. Well, there is. And, and to bring it back around to ghost guns, ghost guns are a very significant threat because, you know, while ghost guns aren't as durable as, uh, you know, properly manufactured guns, they can be durable enough for several hundred rounds to be fired through there. Some of the barrels, most of the barrels, if they're illegally manufactured, don't have rifling, which causes marks on the bullet. So you can't trace a bullet that came from a specific gun. I mean, it is an issue. But I think, um, I think, I mean, just my opinion, I'm not doing this work, so it's hard for me to say. But I just, I don't feel like it's being approached in the right way. So it's going to require leadership at the RCMP and leadership from the federal government to make sure that we're, we're keeping track of these things and we're focused on the right direction. Well, Rod, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That's Rod Giltaka, who's a president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. We're talking about the issue of ghost guns, whether they are you know, created with a 3D printer or assembled from parts. They're guns that are untraceable. They don't have a serial number on them, not registered, anything like that. And that we are, we hear anecdotal reports that more of them are showing up at crime scenes, but the RCMP admitted recently that they don't track that. They don't say, oh, this, we had X number of crimes that were committed by an untraceable ghost gun. So how can we tackle this if we're not even keeping track of how many ghost guns are out there and used in, in commit crimes that are committed? It doesn't make any sense, right? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.